Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis from Elsevier, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the pandemic and beyond. Hi, I'm Shiv Blani, and today I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Charles Lockwood to Raise the Line. Dr. Lockwood is the Executive Vice President of USF Health in Tampa, where he's the Dean of the Morsani College of Medicine. As Executive Vice President of USF Health, he also oversees the Teenager College of Pharmacy and the Colleges of Nursing and Public Health, as well as the School of Physical Therapy and Rehabilitation Sciences, the Graduate Biomedical Sciences Program, and the USF Health Faculty Practice, which has more than 1,000 providers. Prior to his current position, Dr. Lockwood held leadership roles at some of the nation's top academic medical institutions, including NYU, Yale, and The Ohio State University. During his distinguished career, Dr. Lockwood has delivered more than 5,000 babies, authored over 300 scientific articles and multiple books, and co-edited seven major textbooks. He's also a past president of the American Gynecological and Obstetrical Society and the Society for Reproductive Investigation and a member of the prestigious National Academy of Medicine. Dr. Lockwood has garnered over two decades of funding from federal, state, and private foundations. He led the research team that discovered the first biochemical predictor of prematurity, fetal fibronectin, and the basic molecular mechanisms underlying the menstrual cycle and preterm delivery, among other contributions to medicine. I'm looking forward to learning more about his work at USF and getting his insights on medical education and how it's evolved. Dr. Lockwood, thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Well, thank you. So you have quite an impressive background, and since so many of our audience are current or future healthcare professionals, I'd like to start with learning more about you, what got you interested in medicine, and then particularly in women's health. Well, it's a little bit of a a random walk story as opposed to a a well-thought-out plan. When I was in college, my major was actually developmental biology, so embryology, so that kind of may explain the obstetrical part. But I think what got me particularly interested in, in getting an MD as opposed to a PhD was a summer research rotation at what was then called the Sydney farber Cancer, now Dana-Farber, where I was able to work on a rat model for the treatment of acute myelogenous leukemia using bone marrow transplants and came into contact with some really outstanding physicians, including Dr. William Maloney, who ran the the lab and was a, a prominent medical oncologist, hematologist, and was able to go on rounds and and to really be exposed for the first time to high-level academic medicine and kind of had me at hello. And so applied late to medical school my senior year and was lucky enough to get into the University of Pennsylvania. And then I I think my natural interest in embryology and development led me to obstetrics and then to high-risk obstetrics. Yeah, it's quite an amazing and interesting field. Actually, when you were Dana-Farber, did you overlap at all with Edward Benz? Do you know Ed Benz? Well, I know that. Yeah, I know of him, but we didn't directly overlap. He was the keynote speaker of a conference I arranged in uh, in undergrad for undergraduate researchers. And so I remember being impressed with him and Dana Farber. And then the other connection, just given how impressive your background is and what you've accomplished in OBGYN as well, is Alan DeCherney. I'm sure you know Alan oh, DeCherney. Yeah. A dear friend and mentor and just a wonderful human being. Yeah. So his... Uh, where I've worked with both of his sons, two of his sons, Peter and Alex. Uh, Alex helped. He was a recruiter for Osmosis for a little while. And Peter is at Penn, as you know, your alma mater, was on this podcast too. So really impressive person too. Actually, before we get into your role in academic medicine, 
you may not know this about me, but I did two years of med school at Johns Hopkins, took time off to start osmosis and grew this company. Elsevier acquired us a year and a half ago, and now I'm going back to medical school. I'm actually here in Baltimore at Hopkins, starting my third year again. My first clerkship is OBGYN. So do you have advice for me as I, as I begin my OBGYN clerkship next month? Well, of course, it's the best clerkship. <laughs> you're going to have the most fun and some great docs at Hopkins. You know, I, I, I think, of course, it's always good to read and prepare for the, the rotation. It's going to be, it's, in general, students either love it or hate it. If you can tap into the great joy of being present during the birth of a child and kind of getting into the excitement that labor and delivery generates, you're going to really enjoy it. I think great obstetricians are adrenaline jockeys, so we love both the 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 highs, but we also like the crises. And of course, that uh, high risk obstetrics has plenty of those. So, yeah, no, certainly. So I may p- may pick your brain <laughs> along the way as I go through it, but I'm I'm excited, and I have this recurring nightmare slash like dream where I'm in a, a mall or something, and some pregnant lady her water breaks, and we, you know, is there, is there a doctor nearby? And I'm like, well, I'm a medical student, and I need I need to know how to address that if that ever happens. Yeah, no, I get that occasionally on planes and have delivered some babies in cabs. Really? So it's, uh, yeah. That's amazing. I got yelled at by a cabbie when I was a resident because the woman ruptured membranes and uh, he's always going to clean up my cab. I said, well, not me. <laughs> and not her. And not her either. Yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So we're going to go more into OB-GYN, but let's go into your role in academic medicine leadership roles, which is quite impressive. So what got you interested in, in that part of medicine? You know, I, I'm not sure there was anything that got me interested. I think it was one of these these kind of accidents of being at the right place at the right time. I had uh, gone to New York to work at Mount Sinai and really to do a postdoctoral fellowship in the laboratory of, of another great American hematologist, Yale Emerson, and was very interested in clotting and coagulation, which is obviously a big, big issue in obstetrics. Um, and in gynecology, and kind of during that process, also helped lead a team that discovered a marker for premature birth called fetal fibronectin, which is actually still used by people every day around the world as a predictor of preterm birth, and kind of got a little bit of of fame and locally in New York City, and was approached by NYU to see if I'd be interested in being the chair of the department there. And I was very young and very inexperienced. And I'm not sure why they ever approached me, but I am an adrenaline junkie, as I mentioned. So, you know, with the opportunity to to kind of rebuild a department and take on these administrative responsibilities, also delivering a lot of babies and continuing my lab, I jumped at the opportunity and really enjoyed it and hopefully was reasonably successful for the university. And for the department. And that kind of got me off on that tangent of my career. Well, yeah, it's been quite a, quite a career, as I mentioned. So let's turn to what you've been doing at USF. It's been very busy. Florida has had, Florida and Tampa in particular, have had a lot of net migration, a lot of excitement in the air, it seems. I actually grew up in Cape Canaveral. So my, my area code is 321, 321 liftoff. So I'm very familiar with that area. Tell us a bit about USF Health and what its strengths are. What are some of the things you're proud of as you've uh, taken on this role? Well, I 
of course, I love Tampa and I love the warm water and I sail and play tennis and golf. So all those things are fantastic here. I think I saw the opportunity to really take a strong community-based medical school and convert it to a research intensive school. And that was kind of the goal of President Genshaft who recruited me. And I saw there were a lot of, of assets that could be leveraged a fantastic teaching hospital in Tampa General Hospital, uh, Moffitt Cancer Center, a really world-class Veterans Administration Hospital. There was certainly the opportunity to de novo build a strong research program in areas that I were interested in. And we had the great advantage of a rapidly growing population. So I think all those things were were draws to to the job and also just a great culture. People really interested in in building something substantial, both clinically and uh, academically. And and I would say I was able to recruit a great team, and they deserve ninety nine percent of the credit. Well, yeah, it's, uh, again, been been following some of the innovations you guys have. We mentioned before the podcast started that I met your dean of pharmacy, Kevin Sneed at a, uh, a conference called Future Med, and he was probably the only dean of any health professional program I'd ever met at that particular conference. People like Peter Diamandis and Daniel Kraft and Eric Topol, among others. So I was pretty impressed back then that USF had administrators who were thinking, you know, maybe three steps ahead. Can you tell us a bit about some of the innovations in educational methods that, that you've been focused on? I know we read about simulation. Another thing you've been interested in, what medical students can learn from ancient Greece. So Tell us a bit more about some of these uh, these initiatives. Uh, yeah, I could talk about the extremes. I think when I arrived within a week, I was given the opportunity to build a new medical school, thanks to the owner of the of the NHL franchise, the Lightning, that had, with his partner, bought a substantial portion of property on the waterfront, Channel Side. And Jeff Vinnick is just a wonderful guy, a great philanthropist, a visionary. And we leapt at that opportunity, and we were able to get support from the state, foundations and donors and other sources to build both the new medical school and a heart institute near our world-class simulation center, which we call CAMELS, Center for Advanced Medical Simulation and Learning, as well as Tampa General Hospital. So it was an ideal opportunity. And as we confronted the, the physical architecture of building that building, I challenged everybody with the frightening concept that when that building was topped off in 2020, medical knowledge was going to be doubling about every 73 days. That was the estimate. It's probably about every 30 days now. And of course, it it, it really, I think, fundamentally altered the way we thought about the building. So we accelerated the process of curricular reform that we had started, dramatically reducing the amount of lectures, reducing the length of lectures, introducing a lot more active learning, a lot more problem-based learning, simulation, standardized patients, bringing in more clinical content into the first two years. And at the same time, introducing a lot more assessments, 40% of learnings assessment. And we'd kind of gotten away from both formative and summative assessments. So we introduced quite a bit more of that. It's hugely labor-intensive, required a lot more faculty, but I think the end result was dramatic improvements in our 
board scores, where are folks matched, and at the same time, really focused on the educational component and I mean the research component. We said, look, in this era where medical knowledge is doubling far faster than our our simple brains can possibly process that information, you have to be able to access information, make sure it's accurate, make sure that it's relevant to your patient, and you know, apply it at kind of the point of of care and point of time needed. And so to be able to do that, you, you gotta be a good researcher. You got to understand what good quality clinical studies are and what poor quality studies are. And so in my time there, we've gone from about 20% of the students doing research thesis to well over 95%. And many of the students have four or five publications. So it's become far more research focused than, than when I arrived. Great clinical training, still is, even busier since both Tampa General and Moffitt have gotten even busier, as has the VA. So they're getting great training, but I think they, they also are, are overlaying all that education and training on a much more solid research foundation. And I think that combination has been very helpful. Now, at the same time, what we've tried to do is to stress, you know, talking about state-of-the-art current, you know, AI, we've also tried to stress the need for Brit and for embracing kind of the classic stoic teaching about taking on obstacles and challenges as wonderful opportunities to grow and to innovate and to mature and also to become more resilient, develop a better mental equipoise. And, and you know, there's nothing better than having a little bit of grit to face uh, these challenges. So we like to think of that as kind of an anti-coddling, anti-safetyism mindset. And I think it's working because our students tend to use mental health counselors far less than the average medical school. And obviously they're performing at a high level and they seem pretty happy and cheerful and seem to embrace uh, educational environment we're giving them. Oh man, I love that. There's so many threads I'd like to pull on, including the physician scientists, teaching them how to think and be critical. But are you, you know, are you yourself like a like a fan of stoicism? Do you read a bunch of books in stoicism? I'm curious. But you know, so my other major in college was political science. Believe it or not, I went to to Brown for my undergraduate education, and our political science department had a pretty conservative bent. I mean, in considering where the school is now, and so one of the things we're required to do is to read a lot of political philosophy and a lot of philosophy. So that was my introduction to stoicism to kind of the mindset, which I embraced at that time and continue to embrace with great enthusiasm. That's wonderful. Yeah, same same for me. I mean, I love all the Ryan Holiday books, The Obstacle is the Way, being his most famous, as well as William Irvine. You may have seen his. I, I just asked everybody to read that wonderful. Obstacle is the Way. I, I think it's a good way to introduce them to Marcus Aurelius and to, yeah. to put in a very modern kind of cool way. Yeah. Totally. And it takes you, you know, helps shift people from a maybe a victim mindset into a underdog mindset of, you know, of growth mindset. In fact, I just, you know, I just shared publicly that I'm going back to med school earlier this week. And there's a slide, I'll send you the slide, where I talk about the reason I one of the main reasons I've gone back to med school after this 10 year journey is uh, to turn two negative emotions, the two F's I call them into positive emotions. So fear into growth, right? If you confront fear, it's what Eleanor Roosevelt said, do something that scares you every day because that's how you grow. And then frustration, 
there's I'm sure you, you know this better than I do, having you know practiced so much and research. There's so much to be frustrated about in the healthcare system and education system. But if you get that, turn that frustration instead of complaining about it into opportunity to improve it. Like I was very frustrated with Hopkins lecture model a decade ago, the Flexnerian report they were still talking about a hundred years later. <laughs> and so we turned that into a, into an opportunity which became osmosis. So I'm sure it's really great to hear that you don't hear many deans talk about stoicism on this podcast. Right. Well, you know, in, in a way, it's driven many many of my career choices. It, you know, facing completely new and novel, whether it's research, clinical, or particularly administrative challenges. I remember being called in to see the dean at, at NYU after I'd taken the chair there. I'd been there for about five years. It was a new dean, and he asked me if I would be the interim director of the cancer center. And, and I looked at him probably pretty oddly, and I said, well, you know, I'm an obstetrician. I deliver babies. I really, truly know nothing about you know, <laughs> cancer centers. And he said, you seem pretty good at organizing, and who knows, someday you may want to be a dean. And I said, well, I'll never want to be a dean, but I <laughs> took on the job for about 18 months and hopefully did a pretty good job. But, you know, I think it, it's it's propelled me in, in ways that probably I never would have taken on without that mindset. And, and, and in my personal life, getting scuba certified, not particularly big fan of swimming or and I probably have a little bit of claustrophobia and, and fear of drowning. So I said, well, what's the best way to get around that? It's to get certified in scuba. I think taking on those challenges in a, you know, in a controlled way, not in a reckless way, is a way of really fully embracing life, using your talents, but uh, overcoming challenges is the best way to grow. I love that. So how specifically have you incorporated it into the curriculum at, at USF or into the practices? Well, you know, we, we have basically gone back to a lot of the traditional mode, you know, grades and to, you know, taking on big challenges and taking on a fair amount of, of academic, extra academic loads. And at the same time, I think making sure the students realize they were here together that they were here to to enter a solemn profession, but one that can be a lot of fun and, and exciting and interesting. And also to see by the example of their faculty that are working really hard and we're really busy. I mean, my Lord, Tampa General Hospital is one of the busiest hospitals in the country and one of the highest acuity levels in the country. But seeing the clinicians really love what they do, I think is, has helped set up lots of stoic role models for them. That's awesome. Wow. Um, you may also be a fan of Taleb. Do you know Nicholas Nassim Taleb? His, uh, no. Oh, you'd love him. He, he has a quote where he says, uh, Stoicism is Buddhism with an attitude. <laughs> <laughs> and he's written uh, several really good books. He's most famous probably yeah. for The Black Swan. Um, but uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, of course. Yes, yes. But a really good book, I don't know if you've read it, is Anti-Fragile. Do you know this concept? I, I, it sounds right up my alley anti-fragile the whole concept uh, is you know there's some things that when you drop them like, like a vase a clay vase they break there's other things that when you hit them or drop them they don't break they're resilient then there's still other things that when you when they get hit they get stronger right so that's what anti-fragile is it's anti-fragility and so when you get when covid comes at your doorstep we become a better health system or a better educational system obviously it's painful but you know, you, you want to build organizations and individuals who are anti-fragile, it feels like. 
Well, it goes along with the calling of the American mind, which is very much the same idea that that the current mindset is what doesn't kill you makes you weaker. And that's totally wrong. And so that's another book that I really required all the, the administrators and the medical educators to read and talk a lot about in my writing, because it's such a great book. And it really picks apart so many social pathologies that we see today, starting with the impact on social media and alienation of of youth and the safetyism structure that you know has permeated universities and now elementary schools and, and higher ed, and it's I think spot on in a lot of a lot of its 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 arguments. So I think you're right about COVID. COVID was our test as an organization, and I give us an A plus. I mean, it was we took care of the sickest patients in the state at Tampa General. We were able to implement. A lot of innovative ideas, including surveillance screening, and we're able to very rapidly move all of our curriculum online, implement telehealth within a week. I think we've done something like 500,000 visits now with telehealth. So a lot of, of things to be very proud of and, uh, and help lead the state, honestly, with our membership on different, different uh, gubernatorial committees that dealt with the crisis, particularly in the early phases. We even developed a 3D swab in our radiology department because there was a shortage of, of viral collection swabs. They developed that in, in about a week. They released the formula to the planet. And according to the London School of Economics, this was about six months ago, over 150 million had been manufactured. Wow. So a lot of really cool things to be proud of. First in the state for vaccines, use of monoclonal antibodies. But it was a test of of our resilience and our ability to take this challenge and innovate and do all the things that, getting back to that Stoic philosophy, that Stoicism teaches us is the result of taking on a challenge like that. And I think the most surprising thing was the relative lack of burnout at the end of it. We kind of, you know, we're moving on to new challenges, but it didn't leave us hollowed out. It's just the opposite. We were a lean, mean fighting machine by the end of COVID. Totally. That's awesome. So good. You preempted that question I had of like how you guys have responded to the pandemic. And there is evidence. I know there's studies that show that prolonged grief counseling can actually be detrimental to someone's ability to recover from grief because it sort of incepts this idea that you should be grieving for forever and have like long-term bereavement. You know, and, and there's a balance between like, you know, not being totally hard on people. Like you need to be right. compassionate and caring, but you also don't want to be coddling, as you've said, which I 100% Correct. agree with. So that's great. It's so refreshing to hear you talk about that because I feel like a lot of academic medicine and also other other fields are in higher education are, are going the opposite way. It's a troublesome trend. That's exactly correct. And it's, it's a trend that we got to stop. Otherwise, it's going to cause great societal harm, especially to young people. It has, yeah, it already has. So so we've talked a lot about some of the lessons learned over the past several years. As you look towards the next five, 10 years, what are you most excited about? And you mentioned AI, which is obviously everyone's talking about it. How do you see things changing in health education and delivery because of these tools? Well, you know, I think, first of all, AI has the, the promise to improve safety, which is great for patients. And more importantly, I think it has the potential to reduce non-value-added work for docs. So, I mean, some burnout is real, right? I mean, just if you spend a lot of time entering data into your electronic health record at 11 o'clock at night, 
there are probably other things you'd want to be doing at that time. So the, the more we can decant that, that busy work out of the doctor's schedule, I think the, the, the better we'll become. Also, the more we'll be able to embrace lifelong learning and all the other things that make for great physicians. So I think the, the practice of medicine ought to be improved by that. But, but ultimately, AI is going to be critical to being able to care for patients. And, and incorporating that into medical education is going to be both the challenge and I think the great opportunity in the next decade. Because again, information is accelerating in every field at a pace far exceeding our neuroplasticity. So there's just no way we can keep up with it. You know, I was talking to one of our medical oncologists the other day and saying, it seems like every, every issue of, of the New England Journal of Medicine has a new cancer drug. How do you keep up with that? And he said, it's a challenge. It, it really is. And so I think having AI incorporated into our ability to make diagnoses, identify the appropriate treatment, but also to surveil a population so that we can identify and prevent disease by picking up early indicators of disease is going to be very important. So for example, at Tampa General Hospital, we have CARECOM, which is this GE master system for monitoring everything that goes on in the hospital. And they've developed a fantastic sepsis program that identifies and warns of very early signs of sepsis. And it's already had a demonstrable effect on sepsis mortality and cost. So all these things are going to have to be incorporated into our medical curriculum so that students readily adapt and, and adopt AI in ways that hopefully make their life simpler, but, but make patient care safer and better. 100%. I mean, it was Marty McCary here at, at Hopkins who published that paper in JAMA, I believe, about medical error being the third leading cause of death in the U.S. I think the equivalent of what one or two jumbo planes going down every day for a whole year. And so, yeah, I'm very excited about AI. And that's one reason we even have the podcast is to try getting medical students, nursing students, pharmacy students, not just training for, as Wayne Gretzky said, where the puck is, but where it's headed. So it sounds like you guys are already incorporating some of that. My last two questions for you. Uh, the first, and you kind of already started alluding to this in the conversation, what advice would you give to our audience about meeting the challenges of the present moment and approaching their careers in healthcare? Yeah, well, you know, it kind of gets back at, at another theme that I probably pound away at too much, and that is kind of the the Daniel Kahneman notion of how we use heuristics 90% of the time in making choices about everything from what to watch on TV to, to what drug to prescribe a patient. And it's important to understand the potential dangers of that, particularly in medicine, because it can lead to a, just an assortment of biases, confirmatory biases, anchoring biases, um, ascertainment biases. And so taking time out to think slowly about things, to really analyze information and to kind of double and triple check yourself and to ask some fundamental questions about the sources of information, that's going to be a critical part of this new medicine in being able to adapt to this you know, bewildering increase in, in data that we're, we're getting. And so, you know, kind of being able to understand 
where your potential shortcuts not appropriate is vital. And, and again, as with Stoicism, this uh, this has application across society, right? If you're listening to something on cable news or reading something on social media that doesn't make sense, it probably doesn't make sense. And you need to think carefully and think slowly about that and not jump to conclusions. So, you know, I, I think that the tendency, given the rapidity with which information is accreting in society, is to rely more on heuristics. And in fact, it's exactly the mistake. It's like having too much grief counseling. You you really need to stop and think and, and think slowly about what you're deciding upon. Otherwise, you're going to perpetuate error and do bad things. That's that's wonderful advice for sure. And certainly something I think as one matures and reads more of these books, they realize that so much of what we do and why we do it is not actually in at the core, if you ask the five whys, is not really an individual's decision. It's sort of like decisions by other people, by society, and what makes them decide to do what they do. So being deliberate and thinking slowly, as you said, it's, uh, it's great advice. My last question, is there anything else you want to leave our audience with about you, about USF, about healthcare in general, whatever you'd like to share? Well, you know, you, you hit on all my favorite topics, uh, whether intentional or accidentally. It really is important that as we embrace all this fantastic new technology and artificial intelligence, that we remember that we're the same human beings from a genetic perspective that, you know, fought the Peloponnesian War, right? I mean, so we haven't changed and we have to understand our own limitations both as physicians and individuals, but as as a society, so that we stop making the same mistakes over and over and over and over again. Wow, that's awesome. I'll leave you with one, one other quote based on what you just said there. I'm sure you know E.O. Wilson, the, the entomologist and researcher. Of course, yes. One of my favorite quotes is, the, the real problem of humanity is the following. We have Paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and godlike technology. So that... That combination is is now, obviously, it's accelerated. We're still the same humans, right. as you said, who fought the Peloponnesian War, right. came out of the caves, but we have institutions that just have not kept up, kept up and this technology is just obscene uh, in terms of what it can do in a good way and a bad way. Yeah, I mean, Sapiens is another yeah, or wonderful ways of, of understanding the challenges of where we are at, at this point in society and, and, and how do we face technology. Well, we'll have to do a book exchange one day. So I'll let you know if ever ever in Tampa. It's a great place. So right. Dr. Lockwood, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. You too. Real pleasure. It was a lot of fun. Likewise. And with that, thanks to our audience for listening to today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. Take care. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our episodes at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.